from Turtle Island to Palestine. Occupation is a crime. Free, free Palestine! You're listening to Radio Free Palestine. Welcome everyone, you are listening to Under the Olive Tree, the Palestine Solidarity Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. My name is Sausan Kadura and I will be your host for the next hour. So today on the show, we are focusing on what is called vegan washing and what seems to be the failure of the animal rights movement to call it out and expose it, especially in the context of Palestine, Israel. So yesterday I talked uh, with Michael Adario about this topic. Michael is a longtime animal rights activist. He's based in Peterborough, Ontario. Michael went to Palestine last year to attend the, the international conference that was organized in May 2018 by the Palestinian Animal League. After the conference, Michael and other vegan activists started Vegans for BDS group uh, to start actively campaigning against what is called vegan washing and to compensate for the silence and even sometimes complicity of the vegan community with the Israeli apartheid regime. So today I will play uh, the first part of the interview I did with Michael yesterday. In this first part, he focused on um, the history behind vegan washing in the context of Palestine-Israel, we talked about what is brand Israel, what is vibe Israel, both guilty of using veganism as a way to promote and give a positive image to what is really an oppressive and violent government and military. So also in the first part, we talked about how and when the animal rights movement and vegan activists steered away from its root as an anti-oppressive and liberation radical movement to be reduced to what is today a more uh, a lifestyle shows or a liberal identity. So uh, that's what we'll be discussing during the first part of the interview that, that I will play today. For next week, we will continue on this very important topic and I will play the second part of the interview that I did with Michael. And in the second part, Michael um, talk more about his own trip to Palestine. What did he learn about animal rights in Palestine? During the conference, um, uh, during that conference that I talked about that was organized in May 2019, uh, 2018, uh, a lot about animal rights in Palestine was talked about and also solidarity with animal rights, out, uh, animal rights activists outside and also how to contextualize all of this within the occupation in Palestine. So I'm going to talk about Michael about all of this and what he kind of took away from this conference that happened near Ramallah and occupied West Bank. We will also talk uh, about uh, the new group Vegans for BDS, how it started, its latest activities. This includes um, a panel discussion that was organized in Toronto in August, which was aggressively disrupted by pro-apartheid activists within the animal, activists within the animal uh, rights community in Toronto. So we will be talking about that next week, about this unfortunate behavior at the event by some activists. And finally, we will end the second interview on the entire topic next week by discussing uh, how animal rights activists can reappropriate their movement and uh, prevent it from being co-opted by oppressive regimes or right-wing groups and ideologies. So very interesting two-part interview uh, for this week and next week focus on animal rights and vegan washing in the context of Palestine as well. And so definitely tune in next week to continue this discussion. But we'll start today with the first part of the interview where we focus on understanding vegan washing, its history, and why there hasn't been a swift reaction to it by vegan activists to stop it or at least uh, call it out. Unless, for uh, unlike, for example, um, what happened with pink washing started uh, when pink washing started appearing as part of um, 
Israel misinformation effort, right-away activists from the LGBTQ community started forming groups to push back against pinkwashing. And according to our guest, and this is what we're going to talk about today as well, according to our guest, unfortunately, we didn't see the same reaction among vegan activists and the animal rights uh, community. So today we'll look into that. Um, yes, so keep listening to Under the Olive Tree. With me on the phone from Peterborough, Ontario, Michael Adario. Michael is the editor of uh, the Animal Liberation Currents magazine. He is also an organizer for Vegans for BDS. Michael has been an animal rights activist for over 20 years now. So today, Michael joined me on the phone to talk about what we call vegan washing and what seems to be the failure of vegan and animal rights activists to stop it, at least in the context of Palestine-Israel. So just a small introduction, vegan washing is one of the newest form of what washing campaigns undertaken by the pro-apartheid activists and groups and the Israeli government itself. It started appearing around 2015. And like the name indicate, this campaign aims through veganism to create or give a positive and compassionate image to what is actually an apartheid state and a violent occupation military in Palestine as well. So to better understand what I'm talking about in more details, how this whole thing started and where are we right now when it comes to vegan washing and also uh, maybe the attempts of activists to stop it or expose it. So to better understand all of this, we have uh, Michael with us on the phone. So thank you, Michael, for joining me today. We're very happy to be here. So I guess uh, for us, before we understand vegan washing, we need to look back and go back more specifically toward the end of the second intifada. And uh, uh, you explained during a conference you gave in Toronto, and we're going to talk about that because you know, many things happened during that conference. But uh, in the talk you gave during that conference, you explained that it's important to go back, you know, at the end of Second Antifada to notice a shift in the type of propaganda that Israel does. So there was a new type of propaganda that appeared. And that type of propaganda led to what we know today as brand Israel and eventually as campaigns like vegan washing. So I guess before we understand or get into what is vegan washing, can you maybe take us a bit back in history a little bit to understand the origin of all this yeah um we can actually go back even further we're speaking at uh, actually a very interesting moment the former prime minister stephen harper is in israel right now um re uh, at the opening of the hula valley bird sanctuary uh, and the, the new conference center there that is bearing his name. And this has been uh, something that has been, it was announced back in two, 2013, actually, uh, that he would be the, the um, sort of uh, namesake of this new bird sanctuary. And this is a project of the Jewish National Fund, which has an extraordinary uh, history going back to the formation of the of the uh, of the Israeli state, and this is an organization been around since the early 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 20th century, and um, it is one of the main agencies that was buying up land, um, basically in the the right at the turn of the uh, 19th and 20th centuries as the first wave of Jewish immigrants were settling in Palestine under the banner of Zionism. Uh, the, the, the fund was established in 1901, and it has, you know, it was buying up huge swaths of land, um, including agricultural enterprises from absentee landowners and expelling uh, uh, Palestinian tenant farmers. Um, and it's most famous in fact, for uh, planting trees uh, across uh, uh, across what would become uh, Israel, and these are you know it it had always since its its establishment in 1901, uh, it has always sort of branded itself as an environmental organization, um, possibly the first transnational environmental organization. Uh, to come into existence in the 20th century. And uh, it has always, like, you know, the purpose of planting 
large swaths of trees is, of course, um, later anyway, um, would be to cover over the Palestinian villages that were that were um, cleansed during the Nakba and, uh, and everything that has taken uh, since. Uh, even today, the JNF directly owns about 13% of Israel's land and effectively controls another 80% of it. Um, the Constitution has explicitly stated uh, in the past anyway that its land cannot be rented, leased, sold, or worked on by non-Jews. Um, and it's been an absolutely core part of bringing about the ethno-supremacy project that we know of as Israel. But it's it's sort of um, branding as a uh, environmental organization is key. A lot of that is kind of false, and the uh, occasion of Stephen Harper uh, receiving this uh, namesake park is actually pretty um, pretty interesting. This is a park overlooking the Hula Valley, and in 1950, Lake Hula was was drained, um, and the um, the wetlands were uh, there was an attempt to use those wetlands as uh, as uh, to, for agriculture in order to form a an agricultural buffer. Uh, between Israel and Syria, and this is a project of the JNF, and it was actually an utter disaster. Um, the land was totally, it was a peat moss base, which was totally unfit for growing. Um, the the, the um, uh, breakdown of the peat um, kind of, uh, you know, poisoned a little bit of the Jordan River, and uh, there was a, a huge wave of crop-damaging black dust, um, making it uh, the land susceptible to underground fires. And um, the Hula Valley was basically, you know, uh, this agricultural experiment was kind of a failure. And it wasn't until 1996 with um, a multi-million JNF project to re-flood the, uh, the, uh, the, what would become Lake Agmon, which is much, much smaller. And uh, it restored just a fraction of the area's uh, wildlife, which had gone extinct with the um, draining of Lake Hula. So this is a kind of an uh, interesting sort of cap on the disaster that has been the JNF's um, ecological uh, you know, pretensions over the years and hiding what is really a um, uh, 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 really a, a, a project for the uh, for the for the for what is a, a supremacist state, really in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that which has quite a history, and that 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 sort of phony environmental aura about the JNS still does persist to this day. That is a little bit, that's waning perhaps. There's a really important campaign here in Canada right now to um, to uh, uh, remove the charitable status in Canada from the JNF because it's clearly a, a political organization, not some benign environmental organization. And uh, I think there's a pretty good website around that if anyone's um, interested. The, um, the real sort of efforts, though, by the Israeli state to market itself as something other than it is, with the explicit purpose of distracting, you know, dialogue and attention on state crimes, uh, really came into being, as you mentioned earlier, near the beginning of the Second Intifada. And that was when a very... um, uh, important project called Brand Israel started to come into being. Uh, this is a marketing project, a, a nation branding project, which was initiated by um, the Foreign Affairs Ministry and included the Prime Minister's Office and um, a couple of other agencies have had, uh, you know, particular influence in the way that this project is development. The original group was actually a group of U.S.-based marketing agencies. There's basically massive Wall Street firms such as Saatchi & Saatchi, Burson Marsteller, um, and other groups like that 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 did some of the initial branding research, um, you know, focus groups and polling and all that kind of thing. Some of it very expensive and all pro bono, uh, most of it pro bono, and, or a lot of it pro bono anyway, uh, for the sort of overseeing 
project uh, back in Israel. And they came to the conclusion that uh, for, or what they had, what they discovered in their analysis rather is that the, the, the Jewish state for mostly young American Jews was, did not play quite the central role that they were uh, hoping to discover anyway. Um, Israel was seen as a place of uh, con- conflict and, uh, you know, significant religious dimension to it and so on that wasn't really appealing to uh, younger, more forward-thinking American Jews. And that was the big project to change these perceptions, and by extension, uh, a lot of world public opinion about what Israel, you know, is or what they the kind of perceptions that they wanted to portray Israel, which was to detract from the conflict and uh, basically brand the state as some kind of uh, you know forward thinking uh, you know really exciting modern progressive uh, place and to not steer the conversation very specifically away from you know, apartheid, siege, ethnic cleansing, um, you know, extrajudicial killing, military rule, path laws, and everything else that is required to create a and maintain a uh, an ethno state. So they uh, multi this kind of the the research phase of this took about three years and was initiated in the first couple of years after the uh, first intifada started and. In 2005 was some of the, um, I think it was around that period that uh, the marketing agencies were reviewing the data that they had conducted in the previous three years and designed, um, were beginning to design campaigns and programs and, uh, you know, assess funding capabilities and all this kinds of things. Um, in 2006, all of this sort of came into being. Uh, and in fact, one of the first uh, public campaigns was a joint party with Maxim magazine, um, the, the kind of men's magazine, uh, on women of the Israeli Defense Forces. And it featured a, you know, a kind of sexist layout of Gal Gadot, who was Miss Israel in 2004, and has always been a, a staunch Zionist and defender of the IDF even today. Um, and their aim with that was targeting younger males of the 18 to 32 or 26, whatever it was, uh, sort of demographic. And it seemed to work at the beginning, um, but there, this was really, really early in the program, and it has expanded um, pretty in pretty dramatic ways since. Like there is millions and millions of dollars that has been poured into these kinds of efforts. The ones that are of particular note, though, are the way that the the uh, marketing has really tried to appropriate elements of progressive social movements, in particular gay and lesbian rights and the whole LGBT movement. So there was. Uh, almost immediately, well, this is about 2009 now, um, the, you know, sponsoring a Gay Olympics de- designation, uh, having the Gay and Lesbian Travel Association conference come to Tel Aviv with the goal of promoting Israel as a world gay destination. Uh, a year later, they were uh, sponsoring um, Pride floats in various pride parades. There was an entire Israeli pride month in, that was arranged through the uh, consulate in San Francisco. Um, there was a launch of Tel Aviv Gay Vibe, uh, which was a $94 million project of the Tel Aviv municipality and the tourism ministry uh, to promote uh, in major cities around Europe and North America, the the gay destination, uh, the exciting new gay destination that is Tel Aviv. Um, and this is pretty, uh, you know, there's some, <laughs> there's some chutzpah in all of this because the actual reality for, um, for gay and lesbians in Israel is not all that great. There's still a gay blood band, for example. Gay conversion therapy is still promoted. Um, there is 
the gay marriage was actually voted down in the Knesset in 2017. Um, you know, there's still homophobia abounds like in every other society, but Israel is also a pretty conservative religious society, and there's um, certainly lots of sectors where the homophobia is pretty intense. If you are Palestinian or Arab-Israeli uh, and gay, uh, the situation is far worse. Um, Israel does, in fact, recognize same-sex unions, but only as long as one is Jewish and the union was made outside of Israel. So there's, you know, there's still that um, lack of recognition of same-sex couples uh, to the fullest extent of the law, and there's a, you know, an overt. Um, racist element to it, a racial element to uh, uh, recognition of those unions. Uh, Arab-Israeli LGBT community members are often blackmailed into joining the IDF, um, or if you're in Palestine, often blackmailed into spying for Israel. Um, you know, there's there's pretty violent racism of, uh, you know, of, of all Palestinian and Arab-Israeli, so if you're gay, it just makes the situation work. Um, in other words, it's absolutely no paradise uh, in direct contravention to the kind of image that uh, brand Israel is trying to portray. It's really just um, a cynical lifting of uh, these kinds of progressive elements. And in this particular case, as it is with environmentalism, um, just using these elements to pretend otherwise and detract entirely from Israel's record in the real world uh, regarding Palestine, which is absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's basically the, the situation with uh, Brand Israel and its um, appropriation of uh, elements of environmentalism and uh, LGBT themes to, uh, to cover. And these have been known respectively as greenwashing or ecowashing and um, pinkwashing. And there has been, uh, especially in the case with pinkwashing, there, you know, there, there has been significant pushback from the more radical elements of uh, gay and lesbian uh, community. Queers Against Israeli Apartheid is the one major organization that has really stood out, um, you know, in Montreal and, and especially in Toronto, where there's been, you know, open fights over the Pride Parade um, for including, uh, you know, any kind of uh, state or official Israeli participation in that for precisely the reasons of apartheid. And um, it's gotten pretty testy in, past, in the past. Queers Against Israeli Apartheid has waned a bit now. I don't think it's really all that active, but um, it was in the early days when pinkwashing was most, was certainly new on the scene and becoming most uh, pronounced with some of these major um, investments. Queers Against Israeli Apartheid was the one um, grassroots organization that was really pushing back, and they were they were successful in a number of uh of key ways, which I, I think ought to be um, recognized. Now, this whole thing with the vegan washing has come much, much later. I mean, these are the, you know, the, the first, late first decade of uh, the 2000s and a little bit after. Um, veganism did start to appear in about 2015 or so, and it's come in a few different uh, instantiations. The Israeli state YouTube channel did start to um, pick this up, marketing Tel Aviv as the vegan capital of the world in late 2018, but it had been going on a little bit uh, before that. Um, the couple of the biggest sort of or most notable early indications that veganism was also some kind of progressive face to put on Israel were happening a little bit earlier as in I think June 2015 the IDF started marketing uh, the fact that if you are vegan in the IDF you can for example receive boots that are not made of leather you can receive a beret that's not made of wool um, if you're you know you can get um, vegan meals provided for you or if you're on base you can get extra money to purchase you know your breakfast and dinner and all that kind of stuff and the IDF uh, at least on social media has made a big deal occasional big deal about um, the number of vegans in the uh, in the IDF which you know, the claim is ranged up to about 10,000 or more in some cases and uh, the fact that there are all these kinds of um, 
uh, ways that they accommodate vegans in the uh, in the IDF. Now, I mean, this whole idea that the IDF is, <laughs> you know, accommodating v- vegans is just like preposterous. I mean, the the IDF, the the principal work of the IDF is to oppress the Palestinians, and the idea that you can do that while being vegan just it kind of boggles the mind. Um, but it is one of the earlier um, sort of first indications from a state agency in that veganism was starting to be appropriated. Now, the brand Israel itself, um, I mean, when the first when the when the first gathering or the, the first ideas uh, about doing nation branding, which is what what uh, brand Israel is, there the 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 kind of ideas and the the concepts around nation branding were still you know not that well developed. Um, there was maybe one or two you know partial examples of nation branding that had been tried, I think, in the 90s. I can't even remember what countries were doing this. It was it was not a big thing. I mean, it is true that in terms of this area of propaganda, um, Brand Israel was at the cutting edge of, uh, of, uh, of invoking these kinds of concepts and using this kind of national marketing uh, in, a, in global campaigns to change its uh, national image. And, um, but, uh, this, you talk in your conference, you talk like before the propaganda, propaganda of Israel was mainly focused on the traditional type lobbying, like with groups like IPAC and so on. And so when brand yeah, Israel, yeah, yeah, there, there aren't, I mean, there aren't totally clear boundaries. I mean, APAC has been a standard lobbying effort in the U S for decades, and there's also what's known as Hasbara or explanation, or um, you know the, the loose Hebrew translation. I mean, I mean that's where Jews as a people are, you know, called upon to explain Zionism and defend Zionism to the world. And the the Israeli state has actually provided money in different respects to support the general work of Hasbara. Um, but by in the context of brand Israel, this has become kind of uh, uh, professionalized. And um, as we move forward into the last few years, um, the brand Israel uh, groups, and I mean, this is a wide range of uh, groups, it's not just simply like one central committee, um, have started to invoke uh, uh, veganism in a, in, a, in, a, in a broader sense. And uh, what I was going to say, in the early days of the Brand Israel campaigns, one of those sort of super forward-thinking uh, uh, sort of, I don't know what the term is, uh, sort of techniques, I guess, is to bring social media influencers on sort of prepackaged trips to to Israel based on you know a, a professional or cultural theme um, bring them around on a guided tour and then help them to promote you know what they read and see back through their own extensive networks um, to accomplish those those goals. And one organization that got started in 2011 was based exclusively around doing this kind of social media influencer tool, uh, tour rather. And this is Vibe Israel. And this is a pretty slick marketing outfit. It's um, founder Joanna Landau kind of... um, uh, likens the tours that her company provides to a kind of birthright for non-Jews. Uh, mm-hmm. So 
you can go, you can be selected if you're lucky uh, as a social media influencer uh, to join a group of, you know, six to eight uh, of uh, professional or cultural colleagues uh, to be given, you know, an all expenses paid eight day tour or seven to 10 day tour of uh, Israel, basically highlighting all of the professional and cultural concerns that you're talking about, that you're interested in rather. So there's been exclusive, like, you know, architecture tours. There's been, uh, there's even been medical tours. There's been health and wellness tours, wine tasting tours. Um, Vibe Israel specializes in, in giving these kinds of tours and they've been running them for so many years now uh, that almost any cultural or professional concern that you can think about they've probably already run a tour on it or have it in the works. Mm -hmm. So for vegans, um, the crucial moment was March of 2018, uh, early last year, the, um, the first vegan, uh, culinary tour and culinary tours are really big part of the marketing arsenal for social media influencers in general. And they are again with uh, vibe Israel. They've run several on different kinds of, uh, themes around food. Um, they did do a vegan tour though in, in March of 2018. And this was for, uh, uh, vegan influencers, you know, these are by influencer, I mean, the kinds of people with, you know, half a million YouTube followers or Instagram followers or Facebook likes and all that kind of stuff. And you can't get on these tours without having a mass. I mean, the whole point is to have a massive impact uh, in the social media universe um, in order to, to go on these kinds of tours. So the, the Vibe Vegans, what they're called, uh, is what it was called in March of 2018, featured four influencers, two from the U.S., one from the U.K., and one from Quebec. Uh, the one from Quebec is called the Buddhist Chef, who's actually an extremely popular um, food blogger and uh, chef uh, in Quebec, makes TV appearances and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty considerable to have him uh, on this tour, um, they were given the eight-day tour of um, of uh, Israel, where they're visiting, you know, uh, a large number of vegan restaurants in Tel Aviv, you know, a, a farm sanctuary, nature hikes, all this kind of stuff. And they're by this time, 2018. This the the vibe Israel tour process is pretty perfected by this point since they had run so many of them going back to 2011. Um, so you get, there's an entourage that follows you. Uh, it's pretty tightly controlled, but not so controlled that it seems fake to the participants. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a lot of support, including technical and production support. And uh, you can go back to 2018 and see all of the posts from any of the four people that were on. And it's pretty, you know, it's almost as you would expect. There's, you know, wondrous vegan delights to find in Tel Aviv, all sorts of exciting, you know, hipsterish restaurants and wonderful vegan people and all sorts of fantastic food to eat. Um, you will not see one word about the West Bank, the Golan Heights, Gaza, Palestinian anything, um, even the food. And this is another realm of conversation entirely. Um, you know, Israel is not a traditional state. It's a brand newly created state of 70 years old, and it has a history of taking and appropriating um, all manner of culture from its from the surrounding area in the Middle East and claiming it as its own. So traditional foods like um, that are vegan anyway, like hummus, baba ganoush, um, tabbouleh, all these sorts of things, they're now, um, you know, Israeli falafel, for example, not the traditional, you know, Egyptian or Coptic Christian, um, you know, Lent offerings of, uh, of past millennia. They're now just Israeli. And all of this stuff comes through in the uh, in the videos where 
you know, there's lots of uh, uh, lots of you know laughter and fun times and um, a, a real presentation that Israel is this wonderful vegan haven. And the reality, again, just like in the case of pink washing or green washing, um, you know, there is not a whole lot of truth to that. Um, Tel Aviv does have several um, vegan restaurants, but nothing more than you would find in a place like Copenhagen or Berlin or Toronto. Um, that in itself is not even a, a, a an indication that there is that many vegans or that the rights of animals are taken all that seriously in in Israel and so on. Now, the reality is quite different. Um, Israel, for some of the main uh, meat consumption of any kind, uh, Israel is is kind of at or very near the top of world consumption um, patterns. Uh, it is far and away the top per capita consumer of uh, chicken products, um, at or near the top for beef, and um, at or near the top for uh, sheep meat. And that, you know, that totally contradicts the perception of Israel as some, you know, great vegan society. It's just simply not. And where animals are concerned, um, this is just, it's, there are plenty of other statistics that place Israel at uh, um, at the bottom or worse in terms of uh, animal cruelty. Um, you know, pain experiments on animals are the majority of experiments in Israeli laboratories, and Israel is one of the top animal using uh, uh, places for medical experiments in the world. And you know it's these kinds of these kinds of uh, realities that uh, are very different when it comes to animals. So some of the um, some of the claims you talk about the difference between reality and claims. Some of the claims that these propaganda continuous propaganda efforts to uh, that try to make is, for example, the one you mentioned: ten thousand soldiers in IDF are vegan. I've seen things like Tel Aviv as a, quote, a world-leading vegan city. Tel Aviv, the vegan capital of the world, the most vegan army in the world. Um, there's claims of vegan and animal rights revolution happening in Israel. Even in Vibe Israel, they said something, um, I'm quoting, the vegan empire called Israel. And um, so you have these kind of very bold statements. Even um, they have meatless Mondays. That's another thing, their campaign that started. Yeah. And even the prime minister himself, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, seems to capitalize on that. And there's there was this effort to make him look like he is interested in maybe you know, becoming vegan or flirting with the idea. So there's a lot of bold statements going all the way to the top about how vegan and vegan friendly is Israel. Yes. Yeah. No, that's exactly true. And it, it continues even now. Um, the, uh, the, the, the development of the, the animal rights movement in Israel um, in many ways just mirrors the growth of the movement in the West. And like any time you discuss the meaning of political movements, you really do have to separate the the uh, the the left wings of those movements, the the radical elements, the the parts of the movement that have clear goals towards liberation, and all of the all of the rest. And um, you know. I'm not really interested in the, you know, the liberal progressive or certainly the right wing wings of social movements. I'm interested in the Marxist radical left poles of these sorts of things. And the, the, the there has been a split in, in the Western movements or not so much a split, but a, um, 
a kind of real switch in orientation, which I think is an important history for most people to grasp. You know, the it is it is simply not possible to speak about veganism in the way that it's commonly done today as if it is some sort of simple diet or a kind of personal identity or personal choice matter, which is, I think, what most people understand it as, uh, even if they kind of sense that there's some other ethical urgency at hand. Um, it's not so much a liberation struggle. There's, it's more of a diet that gets promoted um, or some sort of identity that you're called upon to, uh, to, to join. And that has not always been the case. I mean, I've been, I did become politicized in the early 90s, uh, you know, on campus like many people are. Um, but one of the principal sort of radicalizations, for me anyway, was the animal rights movement. And it was a very different movement in the late 80s, early 90s. There was tremendous debate, dissension, uh, discussion, and uh, even open acrimony about the meaning of rights and the utility of reformist measures. Now, in many respects, these these kinds of debates are, you know, they're absolutely live in any social movement. Um, in the animal rights one, though, that that conversation has really waned. And it was kind of bookended in two important events in the U.S. And they were the marches on Washington. In 1990, there was a tremendous uh, a tremendously well-attended march of, I believe, in the fifty to 60,000 range, um, people showing up on the Washington Monument to argue uh, for the liberation of animals, uh, for rights, um, in, and this is in 1990, and was you know, the culmination of a, of a lot of work by a lot of organizations and a lot of individuals um, bringing together a tremendous number of people uh, for this, you know, show of force, which is what marches are are about. The now this was at a time when there was all of this kind of debate and discussion about the meaning of animal rights and animal liberation, and the march was there was an attempt to replicate that march in 1996, which failed miserably i mean it, there was a it was a fraction of the like maybe a tenth of the people something like five or six thousand people had uh, uh attended that one and so the this whole sort of uh movement kind of it uh, it waned for a while i think most people could sense that in the 90s that the late 90s were not a good period for for um, mass popular participation in the animal rights movement, at least in the States. And part of the reason for that was because of the, the switch in hegemony between people who wanted to take a much more radical, fundamental approach to the liberation of animals versus those who wanted um, much less threatening, much quieter, uh, much less radical reforms. And this was a debate about the rights question versus just kind of welfareism, where you might be concerned about some issues of cruelty, but not so much fundamentally on the, the liberation of animals per se. And by the 1996 March, the reformist welfareist position had simply come to dominate, and it took a lot of the steam out of the grassroots elements of the movement. And it's only been since the very tail end of the 90s and, you know, the last two and a half decades of the of the um, 2000s that we've actually had this tremendous growth of veganism and a much more sort of uh, uh, public consciousness around welfare issues. And almost all of that is pretty thin ice because it has come in this context where radical demands around the liberation of animals are simply no longer 
uh, the primary focus. And that's the context where you have extraordinary, quote-unquote, growth in veganism and all of these, you know, vegan havens around the world, one of which is Tel Aviv. It's not exceptional. Um, it's there for sure, but it's it's utterly unexceptional. And it's not something that it's plausible to build um, national perceptions around, because those are just plainly false. Uh, the invocation of Tel Aviv or Israel as a whole is some uh, great forward-thinking uh, vegan conscious nation is just categorically false. It's only there to distract from the question of Palestine and the treatment, the absolutely appalling treatment of uh, Palestinians by Israel, nothing more. Otherwise, Tel Aviv and Israel as a whole is no more, you know, it's just another run-of-the-mill place with a few extra vegan restaurants. It might be a little bit overblowing it, but that's the general idea. You could never have these kinds of discussions about veganism without this kind of um, political vacuity around vegan veganism, where really radical demands over the liberation of animals are just completely off the table. And you can see it in some of the, like you can see it in other places along the West. You can actually see this in some of the most recent Israeli uh, animal advocacy efforts. So one of the big moments in the sort of uh, growth of veganism was when an actress, Tal Gboa, was on the Israeli version of the Big Brother program. And uh, she's an open, uh, she's a rather aggressive vegan, actually. And part of the tail end of that show had did feature actually a lot of interaction between the participants in the show around animal issues and issues of animal cruelty and welfare and all that kind of thing. And she's become quite a superstar in the movement. She's also a fanatically right-wing Zionist, and she is part of the this Meatless Mondays. Um, you know, effort. Uh, it was somebody else was the real driver, but she's actually taken. She's friends with the the Netanyahu's, for example. And in most recent uh, months, coming out of these most recent two Israeli elections this year, she is trying to position the Likud party of Netanyahu as the home of vegans in Israel. Um, it's. It's actually pretty appalling, but she makes no um, no effort to conceal her her right wing Zionist views, and um, this is supposed to be congruent with veganism in Israel. Um, you know, I'm 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 a bit of lost for words as to how to respond to that. I mean, the mm. idea that you could pair right wing violent ethno state making with veganism is just it's it boggles the mind. Sarah Doyle uh, writes on Mondovai she kind of um she uh, basically say what you're saying she parallelizes what you're saying and I'm quoting far from being a politically neutral lifestyle true veganism is a radical anti-oppression philosophy and yet one of the most oppressive governments in the world is co-opting veganism for its own gain. She continues to say, had vegans not been so quick to market veganism as a mere consumer lifestyle choice, veganism would not be so easily co-opted for deceitful purposes. And our desire to make veganism more appealing to the masses, however, vegans have sold our politics out and the wrong people bought them along with the IDF's favorite hummus. So she parallels yeah. a lot of what you're saying, that because of that shift, yeah. uh, it, it became very easy for very oppressive regime and structures and people uh, to uh, to pretend they're vegan and to use it to kind of uh, whitewash their beliefs or their crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I've experienced it myself, as I say, like I was radicalized in the movement in the early 90s, precisely when these kinds of debates were probably at their most ferocious. But I, I mean, I don't know... I never knew anyone, no matter which place you you um, stood on the spectrum between, you know, reformism versus radicalism, which is a little bit of a crude way to put about put it. But I don't know anyone in at any from any political position on these debates that that would have said veganism is just a lifestyle or just a diet. Everyone 
took it for granted that veganism was part of uh yes it's a personal responsibility but it's just the the personal responsibility part of your um self and the real politics gets done when you act collectively with others that was never a a, a mistake i couldn't have imagined anyone thinking that veganism uh would become what it is today which is you know dropped of its radical origins and uh something that could so easily be co-opted in the manner that it has been mm-hmm. um, and you you just you see it in all sorts of all sorts of ways to go back to and the that's a, that's a real shame yeah to go back to the the trip you mentioned that has four uh, vegan influencers the trip that was organized by vibe israel um there was a, a bit of backlash against the participants. Um, some of the backlash or the comments that Jean-Philippe or the Buddhist chef, who is the chef from Quebec, uh, got uh, on his, I guess, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, it seems like he blocked some of the people and uh, maybe deleted some of the comments. But also in the comments started appearing a lot of uh, different, supposedly different people have different names, but they're all repeating and commenting exactly the same thing to defend actually the trip and to defend Israel. So that was almost, not almost, (laughs) copy-paste comment that supposedly different people were commenting, but actually it's exactly the same comment. You mentioned in the conference the actual sort of uh, propaganda sort of machine behind it. Like the IDF has a a specific... uh, uh, group that only focuses on these debates on social media and to neutralize them and all that. Can you talk more about that? Well, it's just the weaponization of Hezbara that the that the Israeli state has um, uh, done uh, in recent decades. Um, so there, there are actually uh, it, it 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 was easy to spot in the in the the uh the vibe vegan tour but it happens everywhere um and the social media world it's it's just it's rife there uh there are actually and we're not just talking about individual trolling even though that's kind of prevalent on social media these days but uh there are there are fully and lavishly funded formal outfits um organized by the Israeli government, um, you know, for example, one of which is called the, the IDF New Media Desk. This is, you know, an, just a, uh, uh, an interagency within the uh, Israeli Defense Forces who have paid and quite large numbers of full-time and part-time paid employees whose job it is to scour social media and find instances where people are putting up a defense of Palestine. And it's especially if it is a state initiative that is getting backlash. And, you know, Vibe Israel is technically a standalone entity, but, you know, all of its senior executive are, you know, just a rotating door within local um, adjuncts to the brand Israel sort of nexus of, uh, of, of organizations. Um, you know, Joanna Landau, for example, sits on the Brand Israel board in New York, I think, something like that. Um, so an, an outfit like this is going to get a little bit more special attention. So in the case of the Vibe Vegan Tour, uh, yes, the, uh, the, the Buddhist chefs, like all four of them did, get, started to get a little bit of backlash. And most of them just started deleting and blocking people um, for, you know, contradicting their, you know, their own perceptions of uh, uh, which, you know, are filtering through their own networks of all the great time they had in this wondrous, you know, vegan uh, haven that is Tel Aviv. Um, but when people started talking about the, the, about the treatment of Palestines and um some of the contradictions in what they were actually doing. Yes, they were blocked. But some of the supportive comments were coming, were, were clearly, you know, a kind of cut and paste job, which just demonstrates the professional Hasbara attack. So again, there's multiple agencies like this, but to take the example of the IDF new media desk, 
Um, these are paid people to whose job it is to scour social media and wherever the defense of Palestine arises, especially in a place like Vibe Israel or any of the other brand Israel outfits or governmental outfits, they will troll the um, the people putting up a defense of Palestine. And, you know, this is, you know, any kind of falsehood you can imagine, uh, liberal accusations of anti-Semitism, anything to shut down the the debate where Palestine is being defended. So you were, there were some friends of the Palestinian Animal League, um, the only animal rights group in Palestine right now, uh, that captured some screenshots, which I did, you know, they're, they're on some of the articles um, in the uh, Palestine uh, Palestinian Animal League uh, website where they captured some of the um, the Hasbara trolling, uh, which is clearly professional because it's you could see as the example shows you've got this the same kind of syntax and uh, verbiage, um, you know, in what looks like multiple people from different places around the globe putting up a defense of Israel, but really it's, you know, it's almost certainly bots or, you know, people in the same room that <laughs> are uh, swarming the uh, the social media account. And um, that's just professional Hasbara, as I say. And it happens, it happens a lot everywhere uh, in the online world. Um, it's not at all surprising, really, that uh, some of the Vibe vegan participants got some of that um it is it is noteworthy though that the buddhist chef um or any of the other participants have never uh acknowledged that they were part of a you know basically a propaganda campaign by a closely linked state agency um there's never been a kind of uh you know necessarily want to demand an apology, but some acknowledgement um, that uh, not all is well in Israel with veganism um, has never been forthcoming. Uh, the Buddhist chef in particular was invited by the Palestinian Animal League to, while he, in March of that year, to come to the West Bank, to come to Ramallah, where they're based, to uh, view the situation in Palestine. Um, he refused uh, due to scheduling um issues which is you know i doubt that's a lie these tours are very tightly scheduled um but he's never made an effort since in the i mean this is over a year and a half now uh to visit palestine to reach out to the league uh to educate himself on any aspect of the issues around palestine and the suffering of the palestinian people um you know that's not acceptable um you know, these people have, these four individuals have played a role in vegan washing. And, um, you know, they really haven't been held to account for it. So welcome back. Uh, this is the end of the first part of my interview I did with Michael Adario. Michael is an animal rights activist and organizer with Vegans for BDS. Make sure to tune in next, next week to continue this discussion Next week, uh, Michael will be talking about his own trip to Palestine, meeting animal rights activists there. He will talk about a conference they organized, uh, Vegans for BDS, the con conference they organized in August in Toronto, and what happened when pro-apartheid activists within the animal rights uh, community tried to disrupt it. We will also continue our discussion about animal rights movement and how vegan activists can reappropriate their movements and prevent uh, uh, that progressive uh, issues and values are uh, prevent them from being co-opted by right-wing groups and oppressive regimes. So that's it for us for today. You were listening to Under the Olive Tree, the Palestine Solidarity Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and also on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. My name is Sausan Kadura. I was your host for the hour. Make sure to join me again next week, same time and same place. And until then, I wish you a free, free Palestine.